After a few days, Jesus returned to Capernaum, and word got around that he was back home. A crowd gathered, jamming the entrance so no one could get in or out. He was teaching the word. They brought a paraplegic to him, carried by four men. When they weren't able to get in because of the crowd, they removed part of the roof and lowered the paraplegic on his stretcher. Impressed by their bold belief, Jesus said to the paraplegic, Son, I forgive your sins. Some religion scholars sitting there started whispering among themselves. He can't talk that way. That's blasphemy. God and only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew right away what they were thinking and said, Why are you so skeptical? Which is similar to the paraplegic, I forgive your sins, or say, Get up, take your stretcher, and start walking. Well, just so it's clear that I'm the Son of Man and authorized to do either or both, he looked now at the paraplegic, Get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. And the man did it, got up, grabbed his stretcher, and walked out with everyone there watching him. They rubbed their eyes, incredulous, and then praised God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. Thank you, Aisha. Uh, Willow Park Church is um, kind of in the midst of uh, 21 days of prayer. Uh, I would like for us to think of that simply as an acknowledgement that really God calls us to be people of prayer. And I encourage you to simply keep on praying that there's nothing about 22, that means you should stop praying. Uh, I think God, uh, in amazing ways, um, hears the prayers of his people. Uh, I think God at times hears the prayers that we don't even speak, that God hears the prayers and the longings of our heart. And we bring even those longings uh, into his presence and Often it's, we just ask, God, would you, would you intervene? Would you make your presence known? And we make our request to him. There are people probably in your life that you are praying for. Um, and maybe the prayer in your heart is about you and maybe your own situation. But I, I believe that we need to be people who are, devote ourselves to prayer. Because uh, I, I believe God answers uh, sometimes in ways that uh, we do not expect. This morning, uh, I received a couple of texts about 7.30, I was still lying in bed, and I, I assumed they were one person, but they were not. They were from somebody else. And the texts were in a way like an open door uh, to conversation about faith. And I think sometimes some of the most difficult people in our lives to actually share faith with 
are those that we are often closest to. And so we struggle to, you know, how do we do that? How do you do it well? What are you supposed to say? And this morning it was like the door was open from their side. And just an opportunity to respond. And so I pray that God would continue in that a little conversation that sort of started this morning at 7.30 uh, to speak into the life of some family members. And that what we need to do as children of God is not so much sometimes about what words we use, what we need to truly try to live out what God calls us to be. Just live out the good news of Jesus Christ um, and allow him to work. So I just encourage you to keep praying. It's not about the length of your prayers. It's not about how passionate you are when you pray them. Just humbly pray them before God. Mark chapter 2 is another chapter, I believe, in which Mark is really simply encouraging the church, encouraging you and encouraging me to embrace Jesus Christ. Son of God, power over everything. And more, well, maybe not more important, but just as important as that is to embrace the good news of Jesus. Mark's goal, I think, is to challenge us to truly embrace Jesus Christ in our lives, be willing to submit to him, and to walk as these new creations that we are. Chapter 2, I think, cautions us, and I think continues to caution the church against any form of religion, that may have the appearance of spirituality, but in reality is empty and often controlling. Those in Jesus' day, those who he spoke to, likely would have thought of religion that way. Which is why when Jesus taught the crowds that gathered, what Jesus said, the things he did, the message he gave was like a, I'm going to call it a breath of fresh spiritual air. And unlike the Pharisees, who they had pretty much tuned out, people were willing to listen to what Jesus had to say. Because it was life-giving and it was freeing. And I think those two things as children of God, we need to embrace about our faith. It is meant to be life-giving, and it's meant to be freeing. And so they paid attention to Jesus. 
So in chapter 2, we have the account of the paralyzed man that Asia, I'm going to practice your name now quite often, that Asia read so well. And they bring their friend with them who is paraplegic in order to see Jesus. And as they arrive, they find a crowd gathered, as was generally the case when Jesus was there. There was a crowd around him. And Jesus was doing what he generally did, and that is he was teaching. So the crowd that was gathered there were eager to hear what Jesus had to say. And as we read through the gospel, it wouldn't matter which gospel it is, I think it's possible sometimes to stop and marvel at the miracles and in a certain way miss the message. And I believe the miracles that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are meant for us to pay attention to the message because the message is about a way of life. So this gathering where Jesus is teaching turns into what we might call a healing service. But Jesus Jesus uses healing as a way of drawing attention to what he had to say. It's interesting, these five men did not come for teaching. They came hoping for a physical healing. And Jesus takes their agenda and turns it into his agenda. And it is the agenda of Jesus at work when he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. That declaration likely would have surprised and I think even confused, maybe even disappointed these five men. Because it was not forgiveness they were after. It was healing. And so Jesus takes this situation and I think in an amazing way turns it into something far more profound. Their religious leaders were in that crowd. They always seemed to be on the fringes listening to what Jesus was saying. And they jumped all over Jesus. And so what we have in this story to me is what I would call a spiritual confrontation. I think it remains a confrontation that the church has to fight against. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, say, who are you to assume that you can forgive sins? That's God's prerogative. In fact, the Pharisees of that time would likely have considered this man's illness, this man's, the fact that he was a paraplegic, as God's judgment because of some sin in his life. So who are you, Jesus, to forgive him? 
I think that is such a dangerous mindset to adopt. But it's a mindset, I think, that still, to some degree, exists in the church. To consider my health, or lack thereof, a measure of my righteousness or a measure of God's favor with me is to think like the Pharisees. I think if that were the case, the religious leaders are the ones who should have been paralyzed. Not this man. And I think when Jesus is talking in this setting, he is actually saying to the religious leaders, you are paralyzed, but your paralysis is not a physical one. It's a spiritual one. It's a hardness of your heart towards God. Jesus takes these words, your sins are forgiven. It's a beautiful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he quiets or maybe he angers the religious leaders by doing something else that only God can do. And he says, get up, pick up your mat and go home. In the story it says, and the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. My question is this. What were they likely amazed at? Say, well, they're likely amazed at the miracle." That this man who was unable to walk, walks completely whole. And Ed, I think the bigger miracle of this story is the miracle of forgiveness. It is the miracle of faith. It is the miracle in people's lives of accepting Jesus for who he said he is. Son of God and our Savior. Jesus did not heal everybody. And so people even at that time could have said, well, why don't you just heal everybody? Didn't see everybody. And not everybody that Jesus healed believed in him. As I thought about this story and about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the news that Jesus does offer forgiveness to everybody? To all who choose to believe, call on him as Jesus, confess their sins, Jesus welcomes into a kingdom that's not part of this world, and it's for everyone. I think it's the miracle 
we need reminders of often in our own life. It's the miracle we pray for in the lives of other people. And it's the miracle of faith. To profess that Jesus is Lord. To follow him. To live for him and to live in the freedom of forgiveness. The next part of this chapter talks a fair amount about the Sabbath and what Jesus chose to do on the Sabbath. It talks a bit about fasting. So I want to make a few comments on what I'll call the religious practices that the Pharisees kept and how I believe we're supposed to think of those within the family of God. I'm going to jump back for just one verse to back to Mark chapter 31. Mark chapter 1 verse 35, pardon me, where it says this, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And the other part about this, because I sometimes do this too, he did not tell anyone where he was going. When I do that, it's not always good, because, like, where were you? But Jesus quietly removes himself to a solitary place to pray. Jesus knew exactly what it felt like to feel weary, to feel exhausted. And so Jesus retreated to a private place to spend time with his father. And I thought about that and, uh, in a way that I can't really describe or imagine. It's God the Father, God the Son, the Spirit of the living God in prayer. I think it might be worthwhile for us to think of these, I'll call them retreats, because Jesus often did that removed himself from the crowds in order to spend time alone and to pray. It might be helpful for us to think of those retreats as Sabbath times, times of rest and renewal for Jesus that were not in any way, shape, or form attached to a day of the week. They reflected the need that Jesus felt to connect with God and be renewed by the Spirit of God. And if Jesus needs that, so do we. And it has nothing to do with the day of the week. In chapter 1, Jesus cast out a demonic spirit on the Sabbath. Chapter 2, you find Jesus and his disciples breaking off the heads of grain as they walk through a field. And they do that in order to eat, and it's on the Sabbath. We know that Jesus chose to heal people on the Sabbath. 
Jesus saw the Sabbath simply as another day in which to do good. Jesus and his disciples were also taken to task by the religious leaders for not fasting. They said to him, how come you, Jesus, and your disciples are not fasting? To which Jesus replied, and I think it's such a, I mean, it's a good answer. Why would you fast when there is actually a reason to celebrate? The religious leaders saw the Sabbath and its rules, most of which they had created as critical as a critical part of what identified them as people of God. That if we make enough laws, perhaps get people to toe the line, surely God will be pleased. About a week ago, I think, in Barack Obama's farewell speech to the nation, he saw what I guess I would call an increasingly nervous and an increasingly increasingly divided country. He saw a nation in desperate need of unity and a nation in need of common ground. And he said this, more laws are not going to make that happen. We need a change of hearts. Those, that line quite literally jumped out at me as I was thinking about what I was talking about the Sunday morning. In politics, changing people's hearts is a monumental task. When it comes to our faith, it is equally true. Laws, I think Paul says this, only highlight our inability to keep them. And what we need is a change of heart. What we really need is to become new people. And Jesus would say, what makes my children distinct is their willingness to humbly acknowledge me, follow me, and love one another, and love those who even think differently and live differently than you and I. The religious leaders had set themselves up as judges over the very laws they had created, and the religious leaders saw themselves as examples the people should follow. And Jesus would say to them, you think you get it, when in reality you are blind, your hearts are hard, and your lives are actually a facade. And I think Jesus at that time and that day when he's speaking to the people, his message seemed like something so different than that. 
And they listened. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I actually offer you the opposite of what the religious leaders of your day have to provide. And it was a message that people were drawn to, even people others had written off as hopeless cases. In chapter 2, there's that story about Jesus sitting and eating with people who were not deemed to be um, the best examples to follow in society. Yet Jesus ate with them. The people Jesus was willing to meet with, to eat with, had actually given up on religion. I would also say that religion had given up on them. Yet some of those very people were willing to listen to Jesus and to follow him. The Pharisees were focused on, I think I would say, a preoccupation with performance and doing. There's a lot of stuff you need to do. The same degree to which the religious leaders relied on their works is the degree to what you and I need to rely on the grace of God. Nothing else. And it remains, I think, the great spiritual confrontation even today. Those within the religious community who can tell you what you need to do. When the message of Jesus is a message of grace, gift of God. And it brings life and life eternal. By grace I am saved through faith and it's not by works. Problem with works, the Bible would say, is it leads to self-righteousness. Anything we do that we think makes us somehow acceptable is a self-righteous thought. Pharisees, I think, looked at the language of doing. The call of Jesus on our life is the language of being. Who are we called to be? Are we becoming more like Jesus? And what does that mean? What does that look like? The religious leaders of that day had distorted the Sabbath. They had distorted the practice of fasting. They had distorted prayer. They had distorted generosity. And they had turned all of that into self-righteous rituals which they paraded in front of others. And when I think of these, I don't know what you want to call them, spiritual disciplines, practices, all of which have value, Jesus would say those things need to be an expression of your heart before God, and they need to be things that you do and exercise in private. 
whether it's prayer, whether it's fasting, whether it's giving, those things are actually meant to draw our thoughts and our hearts uh, away from ourselves, which is pretty much our default position, and turn them towards God and turn them towards other people. We, I need to guard against any desire to make myself look or sound righteous. People don't need to know how much we pray. People don't need to know how regularly we have devotions. People should not know how much we give. And if we are fasting, people should be unaware of it. In fact, when Jesus was talking about fasting, he says, if you're fasting and giving up things, generally that kind of meant food in most cases, you should make yourself look like you are doing the opposite. The urge to have people think of us as spiritual even in the church, can be quite subtle, and at times it can actually be quite overt. And that actually represents the thinking of the Pharisees. This book has been a bit of a gift in my life over the last little while. It was dropped off on a counter at Willow Park, and it was kind of somebody obviously said, whoever wants these books, help themselves. And so I grabbed this one, uh, written by J.I. Packer. And the, the cover actually says, I want to be a Christian. And I didn't pick it up because I felt I wanted to be a Christian. I felt I was. But he says this about us. He says, the pathetic truth is that we sinners are self-righteous to the core. Ooh, that's a bit harsh. And he's not talking about people outside the church. He's talking about us. And we are constantly justifying ourselves. We hate admitting that there is anything seriously wrong with us, anything that God or man might seriously hold against us, and he says we have to do violence to our own perverted instincts at this point before faith is even possible for us. That my righteousness has, the Bible says, it's filthy rags. As good as I think it must be, might be, it's not. And he says, God save us all from repeating the tragedy of the Pharisees in our own lives. Don't want to live that way. We are encouraged to be people of prayer. Lots of people in Creekside Congregation, I have no idea how much or how often, don't need to know that. We're encouraged to be people of the Word of God, that it's worthwhile reading well, this book, but uh, the Bible even more so. We're called to be generous people. We're called to live what I would call humble lives 
that are willing to be what I'll call a quiet witness to the reality of Jesus Christ. No pretenses. No, no performance. In the Old Testament, it's really what God wanted from his people. He, want, he wanted that from them in the Old Testament. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think it was the prophet Micah that said, God has told you what to do. Do justly. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. I think that remains the call of God on our lives and on his church. In Philippians 1 verse 27 um, Paul, I think, kind of wrapped up that chapter. He says, above all, and he's talking to the church, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news. And what's the good news? The good news is Jesus Christ. Period. And then Paul's in prison, and I know he's hoping that he can come to see this church, but he says, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith. And what's the faith? The faith is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's this good news that Mark is talking about as he writes his gospel. He's reminding the church 20 years after the ascension of Jesus, saying this is who Jesus is, this is what Jesus calls you to do. This is how Jesus calls you to live. And I call it the life-giving message of the gospel. I see it as a freeing message of the gospel. That in Jesus, I quite literally can find rest. I can find peace. I can find forgiveness. I can find strength. But almost more importantly than all of those things, and maybe they're all wrapped up together, is that I can find life and I can find freedom. Such a beautiful message. Last night as uh, I was lying in bed and thinking about how how to wrap up, and this may not be a good picture, but it's a picture that came to my mind, so I'll, I'll share it. Uh, For some reason, I thought about uh, those people that do sort of what I'll call animal rescues. People who find animals that are sick, animals that are injured, and they kind of nurse them back to health. And in many of those stories, they end with something quite amazing. They'll take that creature, whatever it is, whether it's an eagle or a hawk or a bear, They take it back into the environments in which it was meant to be. They open the door of the cage or wherever that creature's in, and the creature flies free. The creature runs free in the environment that it was made to enjoy. And I thought, I want that to be how I see my faith. I want to experience that kind of freedom in my life. 
in an environment that I believe God called us to enjoy. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and I'll just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks that your words are life-giving. They're not meant to bind us up or control us, Father. They are meant to set us free. Would you speak that truth, I pray, Jesus, into our hearts and our minds. Help us live in that freedom. Father, help us in our lives and in the church to reject anything else that would add to that or take away from it that it's Christ alone. And for that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.